welcome to episode 60 of Reading with Rory, the podcast where three friends discuss the 300 plus books on the Rory Gilmore reading list. I'm today's host, Liz. I'm Erin. And I'm Sarah. Yeah, let's celebrate 60 episodes. Yeah, that's great. Every every 10 that we get, I feel, is a pretty significant milestone. (laughs) We're going to have to start planning what we're going to do for our 100th episode. Yeah, that's like two years away. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all start today. Start planning today. (laughs) Today, we'll be celebrating the 100th episode. We'll mark this milestone of 60 by discussing Cousin Bet by Honoré de Balzac. That was my French pronunciation massacre, so please just forgive me all the way through the book. Um, It was published in 1846 in French, and then we've had translations here, so that's what we get to read. Um, While this particular book was actually not mentioned, Balzac was mentioned on Rory's first day of Chilton. And I don't know about you guys, but I did not read Balzac in high school. Um, So... It, that's a big school. That's a fancy school that's she's going to. Fancy school. <laughs> the only thing I really knew about Balzac was that the mayor's wife and music man thought it was a smutty book. And the fact that they got to read that really shows us that um, things are different from Stars Hollow High uh, when you get to Chilton. So that's where it comes in Gilmore Girls um, and Music Man. So good times. Um, before we get too excited about talking about this smutty book, we need to talk food. So... What are we eating? Friday night dinner segment. Let's hear it, Sarah. I am having um, a sandwich from my very favorite food truck that never comes to a convenient location close to where I am. So I ventured out far to find it today because I was just craving it. Um, It's called the Red Food Truck. They sell, uh, they make Peruvian food and it's just these sandwiches. It's like a, it's like, it's like a ciabatta roll with um, with like this like rotisserie chicken, but then there's like these little, like almost like chips, but they're like cut like fries, and the sauce that's just incredible, and it's just, just it it's just the most amazing sandwich you've ever had, and I I was in a space where I'm like I need to drive a half an hour to find this sandwich because. I just want it, and you know it. It's it's soothing my my frazzled nerves this this fine day, and it's a wonderful thing. Well, that's a that's a lot to ask in a meal. So you, Erin, uh, what about you? What are you eating? Well, I think many of us here in the United States have been comfort eating all week as uh, we deal We're awaiting with, election results. Yeah, awaiting election results. And um, anyway, so I am currently eating some a, a new Trader Joe's discovery, which I'm very excited about. And it's their Brazilian cheese bread. Have you guys had tried this yet? We have. It is yes. Mm-hmm. It's so yummy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very good. I'm a big fan. So um, anyway, so I am munching on some Brazilian cheese bread from Trader Joe's. And also, I am not sporting the diet A&W root beer today. But instead, <gasps> I know, instead I am having a sparkling ice drink. Which, have you guys ever had the sparkling ice drinks? I sure I think have. they're... They're very good. I quite like them. Um, Does it have caffeine in it? No. Then I haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, good to know where your where your standards lie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. What it's about yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Keep that in mind for future 
Got it. Got it. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I mean, this the question would be the same for me, but in in reverse, right? If it had caffeine, I would I would stay away from it. Um, (laughs) Anyway, but yes, I I like them. They don't have sugar in them, so you don't feel super gross after you drink it, and um, but it still has like a little bit of the fizzy aspect to it. So I am I am having the crisp apple uh, flavor today because it just felt like a good day for a a crisp apple drink. So that's what I'm having. That sounds fun and delicious. And some good stress eating bread, like the carbs, just carb load that. (laughs) Well, I'm actually eating just, um, I think I've mentioned it before. So, you know, 60 episodes in, it's hard to get, like, I don't, my variety of eating is not that strong, I guess. But um, I'm having my favorite sour grapefruit slices. Um, They're just so good. And it's been my, you know. gummy candy. Wait, I don't remember what these are. Um, They're just like. You've never had sour grapefruits? No. It's like so a gummy good. candy yeah. that's just a sour grapefruit. It's pretty sour, but it also it is like really super soft. Sour. Oh, it's so and good. It's, so good. It, they're just delicious. So um, I'll make sure you have some sometime. I can hook you and up. Where and where does one acquire these? It's, it's the called the store. Ah, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. I mean, you can get other places. I get mine at the store. Got it, we so. affectionately call it the store of the store because mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> sometimes you need that clarification. It's true. Sometimes you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there earlier this week and you're right. Like the, the stress eating was, you know, a thing. And so anyway, it sounds like a yummy spread. That we have tonight. <laughs> a yummy spread. <laughs> a yummy stress eating spread. That's yeah, what we're exactly. doing. Yeah. Doing uh-huh. it tonight. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move to the next segment. Take that, Jeff Bezos. It's time to find out where Erin picked up her copy of Cousin Bet. Let's hear it. Her rare bookstore finds are fun. All right. So this one I know we've talked about before, and we are going to start encountering some repeats as we go through these. But this one came from the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So again, this this was one of my favorites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Harvard Bookstore had, but mine has, it's like a more modern, well, it's the Penguin, it's a Penguin Classics version, but it has a picture on the front of the movie. So it's got Jessica Lange. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah so it's kind of, when I got it, I was like, well, this seems like an odd thing. So Yeah, they they often will release editions, like I, movie companion yeah. editions. I do not like movie companion editions, unless either. it's like Poldark, where I get to have him on the cover. But <laughs> I do not generally like movie yeah, companion editions. The only movie companion editions. edition I have is Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, and the one with I, Gemma Arterton? Uh-huh, Arterton? Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it just feels kind of like, I don't know. I don't, there's just something that feels like, you like this movie? Now read, like, here's a fun, like, novelization version of it. Like, like, like I don't know. It just feels backwards to me. I don't love that. So. I mean, why not just have the 18th century painting that was on it originally? Come exactly. on. <laughs> I think for me, this is where it comes hard, is that if I see that person, like, in photograph on the cover of the book, or if I've seen the movie before, then when you're reading the book, that's what you visualize a little bit, is what right. that person mm-hmm. looks like. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't do that when I see just, like, a painting on the cover. I'm not like, oh, that person with the weird hair from the 18th century where they would do those weird 
ringlets, like right? Like that must be, yeah, yeah that, that must be what Bet looks like, cousin Bet. But when I see Jessica Lang, because all of a sudden you probably read the book and you have now Jessica Lang in your head as cousin Bet. And so to me, it just kind of robs me of my visualization that I like too to bad do. When because I read book. Balzac goes out of his way to describe her unibrow, so I feel like they yeah. need to find good. <laughs> they need to find yeah. a good painting with a lady with a unibrow. I mean, Jessica Lang. I think we can all admit is far too pretty to play cousin bed i mean yeah we'll agree with, we'll get we'll, into that movie we'll get into sure. that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> i have some thoughts mm-hmm. um all right well excellent so if you don't know about the plot of cousin bet or why jessica lang would be on the cover of this book i guess um let me enlighten you i'm going to turn to goodreads for our plot synopsis today um i think you will agree that this sounds pretty good so here we go poor Plain spinster Bet is compelled to survive on the condescending patronage of her socially superior relatives in Paris. Her beautiful saintly cousin Adeline, the philandering Baron Hulot, and their daughter Hortense, already deeply resentful of their wealth when Bet learns that the man she is in love with plans to marry Hortense. She becomes consumed by the desire to exact her revenge and dedicates herself to the destruction of the Hulot family, plotting their ruin with patient, silent malice. Cousin Bet is a gripping tale of violent jealousy, sexual passion and treachery, and a brilliant portrayal of the grasping society of 1840s Paris. The culmination of the Comédie Humaine, I probably botched that a lot, that's, that's a, okay. That's a tricky one to say. Balzac's epic chronicle of his times, it is one of his greatest triumphs as a novelist. So that thanks, Goodreads. Liz, you gave that so much like pizzazz when you read it, and I was taken in. I loved it. Thanks, <laughs> thanks. You wanted to like really get into that book, right? Totally. I mean, how do you not say those words dramatically? I mean, there's like jealousy, sexual passion, treachery, brilliant portrayal. I mean, there's just yeah. a lot of superlative words right there. So. I think this book comes at such an interesting point in our reading, right? As we have just finished The Count of Monte Cristo, which was published in the same year, mm-hmm. in the same country, mm-hmm. in like same city. Like it's their friends. It's for, we'll yeah, they were their buddies. So <laughs> like, um, I do and like it's this tale of jealousy in the same society it's just interesting it's an interesting contrast yeah let's make that contrast later yeah i like it um so the book makes me think that i'm reading an over the top exciting page turner that was popular in france during that time um but upon further research i actually learned that balzac was more was less like the Count of Monte Cristo, Dumas, right? But more um, known for his keen observation. And he was one of the founders of realism, like realism literature in European literature. Definitely a better writer than Dumas, I think. Sure, sure. He had a really big influence on Emile Zola, Charles Dickens, Henry James, Gustave Flaubert. I mean, when you read that and you can see his depiction of characters in varied social positions, um, you definitely get a lot of Dickens. Um, comparison in my mind I did at least yeah or, me too or mm-hmm. when you read Dickens and James and they tend to use a lot of spinsters as characters pretty often um, <laughs> you can see that influence as well but there's just there's just a heavy influence there you can see that come through um, so that could do some unpacking we'll get into the spinsters he also had a big influence which I learned on Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels they loved reading his literature um, and to me the idea of like author and author's literature influencing philosophers that then go on and shape the the makeup of the world is just kind of mind-blowing so like what do they read that influences their thinking and if they're reading Balzac what are they getting from this book that's shaping that worldview is a little 
like kind of mind blowing to me a little bit. I don't know. Do you guys does that not blow anyone else's mind? No, I think <laughs> it's I think that's really incredible, and I think there's a lot to. I'd be curious to know what particularly was um, their takeaway, right? Like, yeah. um, like are they discussed? Because like again, you and you mentioned in the uh, that. Um, he, you know, this was a part of a, a bigger piece, right? Like uh, his whole mm-hmm. career was this, again, he called, it was in French um, for the human comedy, right? And he's he's just observing his society and chronicling it through this. It's, it's like the, the Balzac cinematic universe, right? Where all yeah. these characters appear in all these different novels. And and he's using it as this commentary on on the world he lives in and on, yeah. on the decade. I would take away like the decadence and the hypocrisy, right? So like I would think that um Well and then this particular one is about like poor relations. Like there was this one and then Cousin Palm is another yeah. like book came right after, book. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is this is how you deal with your poor relations, apparently. So so the other thing, and I think Aaron, maybe you'll appreciate this bit of Balzac biography here. Um, before he was a writer, he was a lawyer, and he famously said that he'd had enough of the law, and he despaired of being a clerk, a machine, a writing school hack, um, eating and drinking and sleeping at fixed hours. I should be like everyone else, and that's what they call living, that life at the grindstone, doing the same thing over and over again. I'm hungry, and nothing is offered to appease my appetite. So... Well, it's know. good to know the profession hasn't changed in, what, 200 years, so. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I thought you'd appreciate that. I think many um, lawyers can identify with that yeah. statement pretty easily. Right. Um, I thought you'd appreciate that. He <laughs> announced his intention just to become a writer and to leave that world behind. I know and lots I mean, of lawyers who've left lawyering to be writers. Yeah, I think it's yeah. not necessarily, like, the most uncommon thing. But, well, I mean, also, what do you think, Erin? You have more to say about this. (laughs) Well, also to the, you know, to the brief uh, mention earlier that he Mm -hmm. writes better than uh, Dumas did, right? Like, I think that that's one thing that lawyers often have going for them. Like, your Mm -hmm. whole profession is words, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you have to be better at conveying certain kinds of things. It certainly doesn't mean that every lawyer is a good writer, and there are plenty of lawyers out there who are horrific writers. But um, nevertheless the propensity for a lawyer to be a good writer is much higher than probably in many other professions. So I think yeah. that that certainly comes through and the observation, the way that he handles certain, you know, the, just the way he kind of views the world, I think um, you can certainly see tones, undertones of his profession in there. So um, yeah, but there are, there are many people as, as they call them uh, recovering lawyers. That's, that's the <laughs> term. Sure, who sure. who leave the profession and go on and do something else, or they leave they leave life in a law firm and go on and do something else. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The the I mean the uh, you it, Aaron mentioned off off recording earlier. You know how how many hours she's put in and how much work she has going. You know doing every week, and I just think especially if you know like I love this idea that he says he's hungry and nothing is offered to appease my appetite. Like if it's not satisfying, like putting all that work into it, I can see where, where there's like recovery needed. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, certainly Balzac's influence didn't come from what he did in his job as a lawyer. Right. (laughs) So he went on to write, I mean, mean, not saying that he didn't do good and that lawyers don't do good, but like, I think that, um, that he went on and wrote this book and wrote lots of books actually, and has, you know, earned himself a reputation of being, you know, not just a smutty book writer, but, you know, more. 
more. Smitty book. We'll get I mean, into has, that. I wonder if like have there been comparisons made of like Jane Austen, who is also this you know observer of her society, right? And mm-hmm. you know, kind of yeah. similar. You know, similar. He was he came after her, so I wonder. Because I got I got some I got some vibes there too as I was reading it, right? Like. I mean, definitely runs in a different circle, but yes. For, oh, for <laughs> sure, right? But like mm-hmm. uh, again, it does just seem like the comment, like the observations and the commentary on like the economics of it all, like mm-hmm. that are kind of ground. That's what's that's what's the foundation of this ultimately really soapy story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it's all, it's all about money, and I think this is the same with Austin, right? Is is you know she's telling right. these love stories, but, but Jane Austen didn't hang money. out with. Vi- Victor Hugo and, yeah. you know, Dumas. She didn't, she didn't run in circles with libertines. It's true. <laughs> no. Um, she, no, they were all, like, fun fact, they, they were all just these good friends. Like, um, there's a scene in Cousin Bet that was inspired by Dumas where he was caught in one of his mistresses, like, um, you know, boudoirs, and that was inspired by Dumas. So there you go. And Hugo yeah. was what his a great father. Legacy, yeah. Yeah, like a seed to pass on. <laughs> that's a good, like, I would love he's, that. That's the remembrance that's like, coming down. Hey, that's funny. I'm going to use that in a book. And you there. Well, and the Do fact that, that, like, Hulo... That's the problem with being friends with an author, right? Like, they're going to draw from their own personal experiences and observations. Yeah, it checks out. And, like, and like wasn't... In the in the edition I read, the Modern Library edition, I, um, with these old classics, they always have... I feel like it's really helpful, like the supplemental notes in the back that kind of help give you context for what some of these references to the times that you're not going to know or appreciate, right? But to a contemporary reader would have like made it that much more richer, right? So uh, one of the notes in this modern library edition I read mentioned that the character, like one of the main characters, Baron Hulo, was was based on Victor Hugo. Yeah, and then the other inspirations, like his mom and his mistress. I mean, there was like all sorts of like real life in in um, the the name cousin Bet itself is you know translated from the Beast, yeah, which but, well, I it's don't not really want to get into. Yeah, well, cause <laughs> is it translated from the Beast? It's like oh yeah, no, the French, the French word for Beast sounds like Bet. It is Bet, but without it's not the name version, right? So like in in French, it would have been like. Lots of reference, yeah. Before we, like, there's a lot to unpack. Obviously, you can tell that we're going to get into some stuff. But before we do that, I'd love to know um, what both of you thought of the book. So, Sarah, what, let's hear it. You can start us out. I mean, I thought it was a really interesting read, right? I um, was really pulled into this world. I thought it was, um, I, <laughs> I was put off by some expressions and we'll get to that for sure I'm certain but um no tell them what are the expressions (laughs) go into it Uh, (laughs) well I don't know if this is a large a larger conversation just about the idea of like the the trope of a spinster right bet is is who's the protagonist of the novel is an unmarried woman in her 40s and and is constantly referred to throughout the book as like the old spinster said and the old maid and her spinster heart. Like it uses the word spinster like three times a page and it drove me insane. But um, <laughs> it was very, it was very, is not, it, I, it was upsetting to me. So, um, so you got past that. And I, did, then. <laughs> I did get past that. I mean, I would just laugh every time I came yeah. across, I just laughed. I'm like, oh my gosh, they are really tied to this idea. Like there's so much social shame associated with being a spinster that like this description of her over and over when they talk about then the spinster walked into the room and she heard the piece of information and her spinster heart couldn't I'm like oh 
<laughs> I, I had to kind of like take that in and roll my eyes about it while still being kind of enveloped in this world. And, um, and I did feel like, you know, her, her sense of grievance and her sense of frustration with her situation in life and with her entitled relatives who didn't care for her and who, um, and, but at the same time, I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm supposed to, I don't know if she's a villain or not. Like I really, <laughs> I really, um, identified with her in a lot of ways in this, just kind of like sitting quietly and observing all the people around her and feeling like they're not seeing her, but she gets to see them. And, and, and so I was really drawn into her perspective. Um, but she's also like demonstrably not a good person and like it's um but none of them are and so it was just it was just a really interesting world to be a part of I was really I thought the writing was really sophisticated and that it, like it was quite demanding and um and interesting and funny and uh it it was it was it was really good I thought I um I admittedly didn't finish it um and so maybe the excesses of the plot as her revenge gets more and more underway, I would have found more repulsive. Um, but I was drawn into the world very effectively and wanted to wanted to see what happened. I like I liked reading it. Probably would give it like a, since I didn't finish. Um, <laughs> so far, <laughs> so far, so far, I'd go like somewhere between a three point five and a four. I'm really I was liking it a lot. All right. Good to know. I think that's an interesting question about like if she is the villain or the hero. Yeah. And we can kind of talk more about that. Erin, what, 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 what do you think so far? Yeah. So I, I mean, it is kind of interesting because like Sarah, there were some ways that they described her and kind of described this world where I was like, okay, you're trying to like, you're, you're just trying to create like this very clear impression of who you want us, how you want us to see her. And, um, and yeah. And like Sarah, I was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Like, I don't know if I agree with the way that this is being characterized. Is she the villain or is she not? I don't know. <laughs> and I think some of that was just that, like, you know, the way that they would talk about her being kind of this peasant from the country, right? And and they would use the he would use the word savage as a synonym for that. And I was like, ooh, that's harsh. Okay. And uh and then talking about how like her fiercely independent spirit and how um she just she was so, so stubborn and she wouldn't conform to anything. And it was all about how she wouldn't conform and she wouldn't conform and, you know, had turned down all these perfectly legitimate marriage proposals that, uh, you know, Baron Hilo had set up for her and things like that. And, and I was, I was kind of like, this is not aging well, like this. Anyway, it just, it, it was hard for me to get into the story. The more I read, the more I got into it and the more interesting it became. But, and at the beginning when, you know, Monsieur Carivel is there and he, his whole speech to the, to Adeline. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I can't even handle this. Oh, it was, um, it was so bad. Yeah. It was so bad. It was so bad. So it took me, I, I had to kind of force myself to get through that and to just keep reading um, in order to kind of move into the story. But it was very hard for me to kind of like, it was very, very off-putting. And maybe some of that is heightened by everything that's happening in the United States right now. And there's this very like politically tense 
moment and it just was not landing at all. But like I said, the more I read, the more I started to see this story get kind of interesting and thought, well, all right, I guess I can, I can keep reading. So, um, I mean, for all those reasons, I would probably give it a three. Um, I, I, you know, liked it. I don't know that it will stay with me. Um, but, and because of some of the off-putting nature, I just kind of had a little bit of a hard time with it. So I'd probably, I'm probably in the three range. I thought it was, um, you mentioned that the first chapter and like, I think if I hadn't read the introduction to this edition, I probably would have been more put off by that because the first chapter is very off-putting and like in, in the, um, what happens is like this guy approaches this woman and with this proposition of like, you should be my lover because you don't have a dowry for your daughter's marriage and I'll provide a dowry. And so, and it's um, also payback because your husband stole my mistress, my mistress. mistress uh-huh. Like, uh, and so, yeah. and so what, so what this, um, the Francine prose who wrote the introduction for in this edition, um, this is how the, the introduction starts out. She says, to read the first chapter of Cousin Bet is like entering a foreign city that seems eerily like our own and turning a corner and coming upon a brutal mugging in progress. Few novels have a, have more violent beginnings, though the violence is all psychological and seen from a distance might even pass for polite conversation. The fierceness of Balzac's courage and his reckless determination to portray the human comedy precisely as he saw it becomes clear when we consider how few contemporary writers would risk beginning a work of fiction with a scene so repulsive and so brave and its refusal to hint or promise that by novel's conclusion, sin will be punished, virtue rewarded, and redemption freely offered to the wicked and innocent alike. Cousin, Cousin Bet portrays a world in which almost everyone will do anything to anyone if sex and money are at stake, a milieu in which sex is routinely traded for money, in which friendships and alliances are forged to advance the most immoral motives, and in which only fools and martyrs are deluded enough to follow the outvoted promptings of honor, loyalty, and conscience. So, um... As I read that and kind of gave me this context for like, this is just this really bold beginning. It's it's supposed to be bad, right? Like that's the, but that's the kind of thing is like he presents it as so, so like matter of fact (laughs) that you're just like, I cannot tell what you're feeling as an author about this is. If you think that this is as repugnant as it, as it is to the reader and um, and that's where I just found it really kind of a fascinating read as, as he kind of creates this world and paints these characters that are not not doing great things and are not particularly great people. And I can't tell if you're like condemning them or not or you're just painting it as it is and like this is just what this world looks like. I just found it all really interesting and reading that introduction going into it kind of maybe helped set my expectations in that way, right? Like, like you know. knew that Balzac was trying to shock you. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, okay. it, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's clear that, uh, I, I mean, he was, he was definitely making a statement, you know, you don't go in like that's, yeah, it's a shocking statement to go into right off the bat as your first introduction. And I like, even though I understood that, and even though I, I knew that's what he was doing, it was still very challenging for me to, it was, it was just so off-putting. And again, maybe some of that is because of this moment in time that we're in right now. Um, that I was just kind of like, oh, I, ugh, like, move <laughs> on, move on. <laughs> anyway. 
Well, they do move on. It was interesting. Like, as I was reading it, like, I got through that part and um, I kept going and I was fascinated by this idea that, like, Bet and then Valerie, another character that comes along later, she's the object of pretty much, like, everyone's desire in the book. And so her and Bet work together and they just, like bring everybody down. And I mean, literally they do. So it's interesting to see um, how this all takes shape and Bet just kind of works behind the scenes and plays like everyone's on both sides. Like she's still close with her family, but at the same time, she's like, hey, you treat me like a poor relation, but I'm actually just like taking all this money that you keep giving your mistresses and using it. And like, I'm going to now turn. And she's also kind of like, like, she has her reasons and you can see her reasons and they paint those reasons very clearly. Um, and you can just kind of see how she's doing this behind the scenes. But in the end, it doesn't really help her. It doesn't really get her anywhere. And the the male characters that she's getting revenge on, that they're making fools of, um, just keep doing the same things. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't just, they don't no really change. No learns a lesson, right? That's, yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a pretty bold, that's a pretty bold move, right? I think that's a pretty sophisticated, <laughs> um, it's a pretty sophisticated novel when they're, you know, it's not quite as moralistic as what maybe people were used to reading at the time or even what we're used to reading now. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I mean, I thought it was kind of fascinating to be inside that perspective of like how people might have, I kept thinking how people might have received this. Like there, it's a, you know, showing this, like this hypocrisy and just like the, the way that people are driven with the money constantly and sex constantly and just how it was bringing these families apart and tearing people apart, but yet they can't help it because it deals with money and sex. And that's just out of our hands to control ourselves apparently with when it comes to those things. And so it was just, um, I don't know, as I read it, it's not exactly like, you know, ooh, this is so warm and tingly and fun to read, but I was drawn into it, and I was fascinated to see where the characters went, and I kept kind of marking different things in the book, and yes, of course, I hated reading, I mean, it was, by the end, like, they kept doing it so much, I got kind of numb to it, and it was just like, okay, part of her character, and it wasn't necessarily... About her being a spinster and terrible and... Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) I mean... Her shriveled insides because she's unmarried, so how could she live any better? <laughs> well, they went, at one point, at one point, they called her. Hold on, I gotta find where I put it. Oh yeah, because I thought it was so funny. Uh, so, um, they say, where is it? I gotta find it. Oh yes, okay. Ah, here is the rest of our riches. Cousin Beth, the wise virgin. Well, you all seem to be very comfortable here. And they're just like, she's so wise because she's a virgin. <laughs> so like, they talk about how she just has so much like common sense because she isn't like controlled by all this. But she's yet, not controlled by her passion. She's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just to, but to call to say someone that when they walk in the room is bold. It's bold. And anyway. I mean, I think that is it's something that is going to hit a different way if you're reading it in 1840s France. And there probably is a lot of truth yeah. to that, right? When society yeah, sure. is is totally governed by people being driven by their appetites. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's talking about, right? And so. she's not, and except she is, but she's yeah. not. And she, and the, the everyone, everyone, she's on everyone's side. Like everyone. I mean, everyone in the family still wants her around. She taught everyone how to keep house and manage their money. And she was helping people like m- hook up with their mistresses. I mean, everyone wanted her around. She was and useful to them. she was yeah. just kind of working right. And the other weird part for me reading this is um, a lot of the characters um, called her Lizbeth. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, it's weird because it's, it's like, name? you know, my name. <laughs> like, I get I get emails like 
to Lizbeth directed to me all the time. So I'm just reading this and I'm like, so this is off putting in a weird way. <laughs> Especially since that's how I spell your name. And so, which is kind of an unusual Yeah, spelling. just throw in that element to it and that's fun. But I didn't despise her character at all. I was I didn't fascinated either. Yeah, I didn't by either. her character. But so, I, that's where it was fascinating to me. Yeah. I was like, I can't tell if Balzac despises her character or not. Just no, the way I don't he talks think he about did. her. It sounded like he did, though, right? Like, especially as yeah. I read in one of the notes that, like, the translation. But I don't think of, he's calling Spencer like an insult. I don't know. I don't know because well, he did it with like Cravel, right? In the same kind of way. Then that was my what I noticed, and I wonder in the translation how it reads, right? Because Cravel mm-hmm. was this character. He's the one that comes at the beginning and propositions this this Baroness to be her lover um, in return, like you know, for money and. Um, and he had been a shopkeeper at one point, right? And or like mm-hmm. or a perfumer. perfumer. And it mm-hmm. talked to, it referred to him constantly that way, right? The ex, the old ex perfumer said this. The old spinster said this. And I feel like Balzac only did that when there was some like perceived societal shame, like social shame with that mm-hmm. status, right? I think he did it with the upper statuses too. I think he was giving you a commentary on where society was like. Yeah. Here's this like person who is in, you know, like well respected circles with the president. Um, Victorine was uh, an attorney and he now was like working their way through that. And then, I mean, he gave but everyone he, their he, profession they, and their role their, in society. He would describe them, but later when he would refer to them in just the ongoing like motions of the plot as opposed to using their name, would he use their their status as their descriptor like he did with those two the, of lower status i don't know well, maybe that that's where that. Karl marx liked it maybe you know i mean that was the thing that jumped out to me was mm-hmm. that like he for for these these characters that i that i felt like i was supposed to be sympathetic to but he was writing about them in such a way that felt like it just like this natural contempt that like he had that he didn't even realize he had you know what i mean like and that's what that's what took me out of it a lot of the time was just his description of of people that I do think, um, like for example, I uh, so I, I I noted these and I kind of wanted to show you like the contrasting stuff and like I'm curious what your take on like just the initial when these characters were introduced and he described them to the reader and um, <laughs> and how he would describe particularly the women right so. Uh, first, he talks about Adeline Fisher, Adeline Fisher, who's the Baroness at, at the very beginning. He says, Adeline Fisher, one of the most beautiful of that divine race, possessed the distinguished features, the flowing lines, the veined flesh um, of these women born to be queens, the golden hair that Mother Eve received from the hand of God, her queenly stature, her air of dignity, the august contours of her profile, and her rustic modesty made men stop to look at her as they passed like amateurs before Raphael. And so when we saw her, the ordnance officer forthwith made Mademoiselle Adeline Fisher his wife, to the great astonishment of the Fishers who had all been brought up to look up to their betters, right? So he's just like these over gushing whatever like this beautiful woman who had been you know her hair from the hand of god kind of thing and as then he describes her daughter hortense was like her mother but she had red gold hair naturally wavy and astonishingly thick her complexion was like mother of pearl in her one could recognize the child of a real marriage in the prime of a pure and noble love from her eagerly expressive face her gay gestures her youthful abandon her freshness and vitality vigor and good health seemed to radiate in electric waves hortense drew all eyes when her sea-blue gaze and all its limpid innocence fell on some young passerby he would thrill involuntarily more than any race <laughs> of that redness which is often the price of the white skins of these golden blondes mar her complexion i mean 
mean, come on! Tall, rounded, but not heavily built, her handsome, graceful figure rivaled her mother's in nobility, so that she deserved the epithet of goddess that the authors of antiquity used so freely. <laughs> Indeed, no one seeing her taunts in the street could help exclaiming, heavens, what a lovely girl! She goes on just gushing about, and just so over the top, and then you meet Bet, you meet <laughs> Oh my guy. gosh. I think you're supposed to contrast them. You right? are. Like you virtue are. versus yeah. vice. You, you you are but are I don't know. Like to me it just seemed like here are these these chaste rich women who are naturally so beautiful that they're touched by the gods and we're given all this like over the top stuff, right? When then we talk about Lisbeth, who's maybe more of an earthy figure kind of a thing, right? But like, so Lisbeth Fisher, five years younger than Madel than Madame Hulot, who's Adeline, although she was the daughter of the eldest of the Fisher brothers, was far from being a beauty like her cousin, for which reason she had been tremendously jealous of her. Jealousy formed the basis of her character with all its eccentricities, a word invented by the English to describe the follies of distinguished families. Um, <laughs> like, she's eccentric. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like a Vosis, I don't know how to pronounce that, peasant woman in all senses of the word, thin, dark, her hair black and stringy with thick eyebrows meeting in a tuft, long, strong arms, flat feet with several moles on her long simian face. Such in brief was the appearance of this old maid. So <laughs> um, it's a lot, right? Like, and I think it's supposed to be, I guess. I don't know, but it's, it's as, yeah. as they, as they, as he describes these, just how he characterizes women, especially based on their appearance. And, and equates their appearance with their their virtue and their character and like because because bet is this sad ugly old maid like she like i don't feel like he i don't i don't feel like he was behind her and that's what i'm so curious as to to your take and to other readers takes because like i feel like he equated beauty with virtue as so everyone does that's a thing that people do and it's um and and it's a it's a thing that that got on my nerves as I was reading it. That's all. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I do think it was for contrast's sake, right? Mm-hmm. And it's part of it's, it's it's a little heavy characterization, like a little heavy direct, right? I don't think we need to beaten quite so over the head <laughs> at the beginning, but I think they it's... stopped to look at her as if they were at, like <laughs> observing an amateur observing a Raphael. Like, okay, buddy, yeah. like, like let's dial it back book, a little bit. As the book progresses, like their actions definitely do more work than those physical descriptions do, and so you know. But the I fact do that, think like, that their physical descriptions are meant to give us a read. That's how we're introduced to these characters, right? So right. that's gonna that's gonna color how we feel about them, not based on their actions, but like the first. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is how a novel works, right? At the beginning, they they paint out, they do the painting of the characters, and then you form your opinion. Now, sure, that carries over, that still carries on. But I mean, as the book goes on and on, and you become way more sympathetic to... Um, to Adeline, right? Because, I mean, she is this, like, poor character. But at the same time, you're like, stop being this doormat. She's like, a total doormat. That's the thing. Like, like, stop this. Also, they keep saying she is beautiful and her husband is the worst because he just can't, like, he spends his all, I mean, and he, she forgives he him loses for it. He can't all help his money, all her money, in order to, like, keep meeting these beautiful actresses or um, society women or ma- kitchen maids or whatever. But his wife is b- beautiful and virtuous and apparently not at all what 
And it, I feel it, it like ruins it was him. also equating like her forgiveness of him, her for his repeated infidelities and his squandering of their fortune on his vices. And she's just like, oh, but I love him so much and he just can't help yeah. himself. She was so, like this angel, right? Like here's Adeline. Well, who's, it's clearly like a and so, and so And so then, and then there's Bette who does not take her situation lying down. And, I, but I couldn't get away from this like initial image that we're given of her as this like black stringy hair, her... Her, her unibrow. <laughs> it's a, it's a very Snape, Snape kind of impression, right? Yeah, like, it is. Like he's trying very hard, very, very hard. That all that, and that's why I was saying, in my review of it, like it, it was a little bit like, oh, all right, I, I very clearly understand where you want me, like how you want me to see this character. That's what I thought, and that was I found frustrating, and I, maybe I didn't make it far enough in the book Mm-mm. to let the characters' actions speak for themselves. But as far as I did make it, it was just. I felt like he was just saying she's poor and she's she's a, she's an old maid and she's ugly so of course she's going to do all these despicable things and of course she's going to stand up for herself and of course she's going to you know whatever but like I don't know so like the the gender the gender dynamics were very frustrating for me um but I but that's also just a, maybe just that's it was the 1846 what are you going to do right so yeah. um but it, it, it was hard reading that in 2020 and being like, yeah, okay. Well, as I kept reading, like I said, as I got further along, all those, like, physical descriptions became less and less how you viewed that character. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, if your, your Snape comparison is pretty apt. There's more there's more going on with Bet than what is shown in that beginning. Like, sure, people, like, overlook her or, oh, look at her. She's this poor relation. She's, like, doing her seamstress. She's, like, a seamstress and doing all this, living in, like, these you know like the, she she herself acknowledges that she feels overlooked and that's part of the issue right and so that's why she's so jealous that's why this revenge becomes so um so driven into her and and it's not because bo- she's overlooked and sad and single it's because her cousin steals the person that she loves well, it's all those things yeah. like it's all those things it's that that her cousin does that it's that they don't appreciate her it's she's gonna make them appreciate her it's definitely also that like adeline got the treatment of you're the pretty one and now mm-hmm. we're gonna elevate you and she's gonna we we don't need to worry about um bet she's the peasant or the beast or however you want to describe it Uh, bet's motivation in the later part of the book for sure is that she wants to be elevated in society higher than adeline so her goal is to marry the baron hulot's brother who is you know even higher in the society she's going to be higher ranked that's her goal so she is trying to get everyone to be on her side and they all are on her side so that she can marry this brother so he'll they'll like talk him into it i guess right push the match i mean sad that all of her, um, you know, Machiavellian efforts also thwart that plan too, but um, in ways that she can't really control. But she, yeah, I just think that there's, her character had so many layers to it that I was kind of, I, uh, I, I was, all the off-putting things that they describe at the beginning that you're like, oh, come on, be, you know, whatever. It was, um be a little bit more kind or less heavy-handed, I guess. Yeah. It became less... I agree with Less you. Yeah. out. Like, mm-hmm. again, it's written... It's sophisticated enough that you, there's more there, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. As you're reading it. But at the same time... And yeah, maybe he does want but, us to feel bad for her But then first, with right? every paragraph so. that starts, and the old spinster came in, I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> 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 like, 
<laughs> but I mean, the whole book was his commentary, his human commentary or comedy of humans. And that's her role in this whole, as you put it, Marvel Universe, is to be the poor relation. Right. And the only reason she's a poor relation, let's face it, is because she is a spinster. And so and, that's and an unattractive spinsters. spinster. Let's okay, talk let's about do. spinsters, you guys. Okay, <laughs> can I can I read one of my favorite? Uh-huh. So uh, I loved I loved the way he described cousin Bet as a spinster. He said, um, so he says, with the years, cousin Bet had developed some very odd old maidish quirks. For example, instead of following the fashion, she tried to make fashion fit her peculiarities and conform to what she liked, which was always a long way behind the mode. If the Baroness gave her a pretty new hat or a dress cut in the style of the moment, Cousin Bet at once took it home and remodeled it according to her own ideas, completely spoiling it in the process of producing a garment or headgear reminiscent of Empire styles and the clothes she used to wear long ago in Lorraine. Her 30 franc hat after that treatment was just a shapeless head covering and her dress like something out of the rag bag. Bet was, in such matters, as obstinate as a mule. She was determined to please herself and consult no one else, and she thought herself charming in her own mode. Certainly the assimilation of the style of the day to her own style was harmonious, giving her from head to foot the appearance of an old maid. But it made her such a figure of fun that with the best will in the world, no one could invite her on smart occasions. (laughs) I I thought that was I was like, uh... I, I just, I found it very interesting... Since we're on the topic of spinsters, yeah, let's of, dive in. <laughs> the, well, that one of the ways that he characterizes the spinster, right, is this like very independent woman who will not conform to the expectations of society around her, and she very clearly doesn't, right? Like she's very jealous of Adeline, but she does not want to. Um, she she doesn't want to go through with any of these other like marriages just for the sake of going through with them you know she like it's just it's just an interesting way especially when the contrast the very stark contrast to Adeline of oh I'm so deferential to my husband who is this god in his own right Mm -hmm. and has given me everything and I owe everything I am to him (laughs) and so I'm going to overlook everything he's ever done because of that because I just love him so much and when he tears up it just melts my heart and I just can't even reproach him for anything and then you have Bet who's like I'm going to take you all down and I'm going to do it successfully and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that was just a very interesting way of characterizing the, you know, quote unquote, old maid or spinster. Well, that's what's so Mm -hmm. interesting about it, right? Is that, like, I think that they, you know, Bet's the protagonist. It's not Adeline, because Adeline's so boring. Who wants to read a book about her? Um, But I think that that's where I kind of wanted to keep going, because, like, I cannot tell. Like, the way you talk about Adeline and Hortense in such effervescent over the top, like, this was this angel on earth kind of a thing, right? And these are, like, the virtue, like, this is the most virtuous woman, and these are, like, the ideals of womanhood kind of a thing. And then we have Bet, who is, um, yeah, she's she is independent. She is free-thinking. She's incredibly stubborn. She She's out to get what she wants, right? And, um, and but he talks about her in such, like... <laughs> in it's just frankly really harsh terms even though she's 
she's she's our hero of the story and i had a really hard time understanding his tone as i've said before. like i don't know if, <laughs> like I, I don't know what kind of person you're trying and that's the thing i, I don't know that he is what did you think say. like did you think she was like overall what, me, what regardless I of what he was trying how did you th- well that's what because her? because i couldn't tell like <laughs> like i was just came away so conflicted in the sense of like of course i, I look at i looked at at adeline and was like she's oh my gosh like it's just you're just rolling your eyes at like what what person what self-respecting person would accept this behavior right and (laughs) and you know you feel you feel sympathy for bet and in that you know we feel sympathy for bet you yeah yeah we do we do i'm just saying like right here's two things going into the meaning for her and i see your point i know where you're going with this i i think but the his his balzac's meaning is I who knows we don't know what his meaning is but our interpretation of it is colored by our own life experience which has to come into play and um then also just the modern times that we live in and just like what her role is supposed to be but like when other people read it like if you are uh, you know I don't know like a a woman whose husband has been cheating on her her whole life right if you're reading this and you're thinking Maybe Adeline is the hero of this story, right? Or maybe you're thinking, oh, um, Valerie is the worst person in this story. And Cousin Bet, you're not even paying attention to her because she's just this enabler that doesn't do anything. I mean, I to, to help benefit um, Adeline, right? She's really not really helping Adeline as much as she is. Or she's more two-faced to Adeline. So I guess I'm saying that, like, the meaning for each character is also colored by who who's reading it. And the times that we read it in, and that absolutely, plays into I it. I agree. But I had a, I couldn't just read it free of like, you know, what I like read it and just take away what I just was so I felt like the tone of it was so um, ambivalent that <laughs> I was fascinated with like what is he think like he's the one telling the story he's the one shaping this narrative and describing these people the way in the terms that he's doing it and. While one person, I feel like, like, it, it was just, it was just fascinating to me in that, like, it wasn't even, like, a classic antihero, right? Where you, like, huh. it was just, it was really, really subtle, and it was really, again, I just almost kind of like a documentarian sort of a thing. Like, here's these people that I'm just <laughs> observing, and I'm telling you yeah, about that's them. that's his style, right? Yeah. That's his realism. And so, and so it's, but it, it, it was, it was just fascinating and frustrating and that was like to me a compelling combination enough to want to Mm -hmm. keep going and um but no i really do want to talk about spinsters yeah (laughs) so um let's do this because i was gonna say so like his view on spinsters also is not unique to him right like they've been so i like did a little research on this right because i was like i wonder like let's anyways so i just like looked up spinster stuff in books and i found a list of like the top 10 literary spinsters (laughs) and that's a treat and then there was like one that kind of like put the spinsters into types right so we have like the hysteric spinster and then we have the prattling spinster and then we have the pseudo spinster and that's Anne Elliot, right, in Jane Austen, who is, like, almost a spinster, but then she gets married. And then we have Henry James's hysteric spinsters, or Charles Dickens, like, Miss Havisham. And, I mean, we just have, like, all these different types of women. And the only thing that's connecting them is that they're not married, right? Like, and that has to be part also of just their types of women, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. 
But um, the list of, like, the most famous, who guys do you think, when you think of, like, literary spinsters, who do you think of? I mean, I do think of Miss Havisham. I think that's the hard, yeah. it's hard not to, to, to do that. But also what comes to mind is, like, Miss Bates and, and Emma. Um, yeah, they didn't list her. Yep. That would be the prattler for sure, though. Yeah, yeah. Miss Bates is a good one. Um, <laughs> um, there's usually some spinster character in every story who, and that's, and maybe you read this to me, Liz, or some, I read it somewhere, right? Usually the spinster's on the on the sidelines, quietly observing everything, and it's rare for her to be the protagonist, especially yeah. at this time, which I do think it makes makes it especially unusual, and also just kind of, there's something that's not sitting right, because he's still talking about her, like, you would talk about a well, she's also in the margins, that's the point. But, yeah, but the name of the novel is Cousin Bet. I know, but because she's in the margins, she's doing, she's like, puppet mastering all the action, from the margins. Right. Like, here's the quote I was reading to you. Spinsters are rarely the protagonists in the English novel, right. but they are oddly abundant in its margins. Here, the lovelorn, the busybody, the murdering and vengeful, or the merely hysterical spinster form an unending parade of horribles, each figure more grotesque and terrifying than the last. So, yes, there's obviously a connotation of a spinster being terrifying and horrible and grotesque. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that that was her role in the book. So I don't know that that was what Balzac was trying to do. But I don't but think he I, described her in positive light, in a positive term. It did, but again, because you read the word spinster at least once every page, <laughs> like, it does make you stop and think about how the world views these kind of women. And like, Well, let's just take it back. That's, well, that's the work now. There's a novel, there's a book called Spinster that's trying to do that right now. So Well, also, okay, well, well I, was, I was going to say, I, I, like, I think we should talk about how spinsters, quote-unquote, are viewed today, right? Because I think technically well, yeah, I we, we all fall into this category, right? So right, has the our views color the novel. Yeah. <laughs> we assume, you know, but uh, so we assume like, our listener knows that about us, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> so does does the impression has the impression of a spinster changed from the from Balzac's time to today? I don't think you can ask us because we're spinsters. Well, I think that's probably too. Um, I'm going to play you a video. I'm going to play audio from a video. And okay. We'll put it on and, the then, website. and then I want to share a story after that. You share your story. I'll find the video. Okay. Go. Um, and I think I may have shared this with you guys before, actually. But um, <clears throat> so I had a friend who I was talking to, and we were having a relatively interesting, somewhat heated conversation about um, a variety of things. And in the process of this conversation one of the like it was pretty clear that um he was getting very worked up over what i was saying and so at one point as a response to um to my comment basically said something like well you need to get married and get in the real world and i was like excuse me and uh and then he kind of went on people like actually speak what they're really thinking out loud so that's that's refreshing yeah and then and then he went on and said um something to the effect of i think these kinds of opinions are the ones are only shared in uh like single social circles because um 
those are the only better? well because those are the only people who are left or, or the only people who are left are the ones with opinions like this or, or something like that where he specifically talked about the only people who are left and i was like oh my gosh you just went there like you just did that and i assume that most married people think that i'm gonna be honest but but that's so that's kind of what i mean like i don't know that the whole impression of a spinster has really changed that much because oh, I don't think so. yeah and and like this is someone who i i have a lot of respect for generally speaking and who i get along with fairly well and th- so this was a very out of the blue kind of comment and i was just totally stunned that he even said it and then he kind of like tried to walk it back a little bit and and make a joke out of it and i was just like oh my gosh you have got to be kidding me why on earth are we like this is just absolutely crazy that we're having this I conversation I, and that you actually believe that yeah i do think that it's such a pervasive stereotype it's impossible <laughs> to really have made much and i do like the idea of trying to take the term back I, but i think that term is so loaded there's no taking it back you need to eradicate it completely and we can talk about the idea of a single woman and what that what that means but but trying to like take back the term spinster and make it like <laughs> You know, an empowering term is laughable to me. That is not an empowering term. It will never be an empowering term. Because we're battling all yeah. the stereotypes of, like, the cats or uh-huh. the, you know, like, anyway. I'm going to play you this video for a second. This is, so they someone published a book called Spinster. And it's just kind of analyzing that role. Who and, published and, the book? Tell us. It's uh, the name, um, Katie, Kate Bollocks. Okay. Um, no, so sorry. Hold on. So yeah, Kate Bollock, she, she was also an, an Atlantic Monthly cover story called All the Single Ladies that we the revolutionized the way we think about unmarried women. And she, ma- she wrote a memoir called Spinster. So Kate Bollock. And she shows the contemporary debates about settling down, having it all, or anyway. So she, so so when this came out, when the book came out, when the article came out, um, they did a, like a woman on the street kind of interview, and they would go up and ask people what they thought of. So we'll see if this will cut. Maybe we'll cut this. We'll just see. But let's see if the video will work. Here we go. This is the audio of it. Hi, I'm Barney McFarlane, and today we're here at Washington Square Park. We're talking about the book Spinster by Kate Bullock, and it's a fantastic book, and we're trying to find out from people what they think the word spinster means. What do you think of when I say the word spinster? I think spinster has um, kind of a negative connotation. Old woman who never got married. Old lady with a lot of cats and living by herself. Cat lady, never married. An old cat lady. I, I have a cat, so I constantly think about like someone who lives alone, has a lot of cats. Why is it always cats? Oh, the, the, the old lady never gets the dog. I know, right? But I think it actually is an unmarried virgin. An old one, that's where the name came from. I didn't I didn't think about the virgin part of it. I think of like an old lady holding money and never using it, never buying anything. But she has money. And I also think of like old movies, like It's Wonderful Life, when she's a librarian and it's like a horror story. That's how my mom's friends are from <laughs> before right. you end. Uh, I know a couple of them are not married. And what are they like? Uh, they're software engineers. And, I mean, they seem fine. <laughs> Why do you think women still feel such a need to get married? I think it's like, why aren't they just sleeping around? <laughs> well, everyone is saying, well, clock is ticking, and if you want to have a family, you have to get married. If you come from a really traditional family like I do, a lot of my cousins who are like mid-twenties, they're like, where, where's my husband? I guess I'm at the point where I would like to get married, so. <laughs> like, do you have a boyfriend? 
No. Oh, just so you gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta start yeah, from the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think this is called the benefits of spinsterhood. Being a spinster, as it were. Yeah, you get to watch what you want on TV and keep the house the way you want it. Yeah. I can do whatever I want when I want to do it. You can be free and do whatever you want. Maybe just having freedom. The uh, the freedom. Who keeps saying that? Freedom. Freedom is like it's like being married is some kind of a prison. There was recently an interview about a woman who's I think something like 107, and she said the secret to her long life was being single for 60 years. But men really need to be with women. They say men die earlier if they're single. That's right. Right? Yeah. And women live longer if they're single, right? <laughs> you better get divorced. No, I guess you could put a good positive spin on the word spinster. We can take it back. I could get into the idea of it being sort of reappropriated as an empowering word. Nope. Like an independent woman, I guess, you know, you know, doesn't need a relationship to feel valid. Not married? I think go her. Travel the world, do you. Freedom. Exactly, freedom. <laughs> Gender equality, yes. <laughs> well, that was interesting. We learned a lot about what people think uh, about single women and marriage. Find out a lot more about it here in this amazing... Anyway, that's, you get the gist. That was them on the street talking to just people in the park. Because I've read, so. I've read stuff about that idea of like you know we have to take take this back because i do think the idea of an, an an older unmarried woman as like a pathetic um figure is completely outdated right and like yeah. but mm -hmm. i do think that there's the so... term spinster is hard to escape yeah i think i think yeah. the term spinster is just too too loaded and i do think that like that it is so pervasive like we still live in 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 a culture that you know your, your your worth is is so often read by your marital status or your romantic status and and it's obviously very frustrating as you know i'm sure all of us could attest to in our own different experiences and have experienced that from and and observe just casual remarks that people who love you make right like mccom is like oh look at her like she's single for a reason i'm like 1000% I believe everyone in my life thinks that I'm single for a reason and that's bullshit and I think that like you think that it's a you think that it's a there's it, it there's some sort of like value assessment with being um with being attached to someone there's something wrong with you if you're not attached to someone and and I think that is comes from just centuries of that's how we look at women is that's where their worth comes from Thanks, is Balzac. when they're attached to a man. Thanks a lot, Balzac. So, like, um, so I just think it's a, it's a hard thing. It's a hard stereotype to overcome. It's too, it's, 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 we're it's getting loaded. there, but it's, it's loaded, but it's, it's loaded, but it's also just like, you know, thousands of years of human history that you're working against <laughs> and like things have started to change. And yeah, maybe the last 20 years it takes some time to kind of really change those attitudes in a real meaningful way, I think. Yeah. Well, I do think, I mean, as, as you know, his depiction of Bet is definitely harsh, right? In a lot of ways. And the, the depiction of a spinster, I think we really, you know, got into, no, there's a lot more we could do on that, actually. But we could, well, I, I say I say we don't. I say we just move we'll forward just go to our therapist. Bit. It's fine. It's cool. Sure, sure, sure. Um, be kind <laughs> to the spinsters in your life. Otherwise, they're going to get revenge on you. Yeah, they're, they're um, coming for you. <laughs> Speaking of revenge, I do want to briefly touch on this. I think it's interesting since we just read Count of Monte Cristo and it's his revenge tale and it's Bet's revenge tale. And we both get these kind of like revenge tales of like how to get revenge on someone and hers is to like ruin them financially by ruining them by like by using their own them through Valerie. Them. 
Yeah. Um, I actually found that very satisfying. So, um, in a lot of ways more satisfying than the revenge of Count of Monte Cristo. So I guess my question is, is what do you think is the most effective method of revenge? Go. That's a great question. I, oh man. I do think the idea of like using someone's own foibles for them to kind of like creating the right set of circumstances that their own weaknesses are just going to equal their downfall, which I actually think is what he did in Count of Monte Cristo as well. Yeah, I think that's what they both did. um, But there is something slightly more satisfying about this revenge tale for me, too. I agree. So I wonder what that, I wonder why. Is it because we're spinsters? (laughs) Because we're spinsters? I'm guessing that's not a small part of it. Okay. I don't know. I I mean, I think for me, there's something where if you're going to get revenge... Try to do it in a way where you don't take yourself down in the process. And mm-hmm. she did. So I think, like, I kind of like the idea. But, oh, that's can that even be done? That's a whole separate question. But. Well, it's a good, it's good, it's a good point, a good, good question. But if you're talking particularly like the movie form of the Count of Monte Cristo, right, where you get the money, you get everything you wanted, and you set up your enemies to self destruct. That seems like a pretty effective means of, or a pretty great way of, of getting revenge. Yeah, you make a good point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he did get to ride off in the sunset with the woman that he loves and have lots of money and a happy ending. In the and, movie. Well, Cousin <laughs> Bet doesn't. <laughs> it's like, it, that's not what, I mean, I guess that's also what happens in the in the book, too. It's just a different mm-hmm. woman. So, um, but what with cousin bet like it is just more realistic right like it's never gonna line up that way where it's like i get to have unlimited resources and spend 10 years away planning and you know what i mean like she just used her wits and like just her lifetime of like just kind of sitting in the sidelines and observing their their own their own flaws and 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 knew how easy it was to manipulate them just through like i mean everyday life i feel like there was a scene in the book where um, Valerie and Bet are just like laughing at these men. Like they're so easy. Like why are men so easy to do this to? And like the 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 father, like the father-in-law, the like the uh, the son. I mean, everyone was all all involved with this same woman at the same time. And. She, and she's like, just quietly. She was at them rooting all of them, and they're just mm-hmm. like, "Let's now, let's laugh about this." And even on. Like Valerie's deathbed, they're like, "Well, look what we did, ha ha!" <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's it's still of, satisfying her, this... even though she dies of consumption. <laughs> no, she didn't die of consumption. She died of poisoning, technically. Oh. But that's okay. <laughs> when have you stopped? When do you know you've got your revenge? I think you you become so your vision becomes so muddled and clouded by your own. Mm-hmm. And you're driven by such negative energy, like you're not in a place to just like be like, yeah, okay. Um. Yeah, <laughs> and it's hard to walk away from too. Like when mm-hmm. you when you put every basically everything you have, especially like in these stories where you you go all in, then it because it's never going to leave you feeling good about life, right? Like you're still you're still not going to have what you wanted in the first place, likely. And then you've also just destroyed the lives of other people in the process. And like speaking from like a general, like moral compass, right? That's usually not going to leave you feeling very great. And so 
how do you walk away from that? Whatever, Erin, that's coming from some sort of experience. (laughs) (laughs) Now I think that's a story for another day. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that it's like where this is, is you maybe a little bit more sophisticated of a, of a revenge plot is that, you know, it's not also like she doesn't, you know, she doesn't wind up triumphant in the end. It it's from, is my understanding, right? Like it's just kind of like she's no, also no, she's still the poor relation. There's yeah, there's not there's not poor. this moment of like sweet savoring of my, you know, I'm gonna you know ruin your lives and then look down on you and laugh and that's not what happens here. It's just, but there's also it's also not this moralistic tale of like, um this is what happens when you do this, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's... No, it's, it's more of a societal view than a moral tale. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, well, those are all good points, and I would love to keep analyzing the characters and how much they changed because I find these characters fascinating. But let's move on to our pop culture segment, um, so my, obviously my favorite mention of Balzac is from the Music Man, and I'm just going to play you the clip so we can just, like, have that in our heads. Here we go. Professor, her kind of woman doesn't belong on any committee. Of course, I shouldn't tell you this, but she advocates dirty books. Dirty books? Chaucer. Rabelais, Balzac, and the worst thing, of course, I shouldn't tell you this. I'll tell. The man lived on my street. Let me tell. No, I'll tell. She made brazen overtures to a man who never had a friend in this town till she came here. Oh, yes, that woman made brazen overtures with a gilt edge guarantee. She the golden glint in her eye, the silver voice with a counterfeit ring. Just melt her down and you'll reveal a lump of lead as cold as steel here, where a woman's heart should be. He left River City, the library building, but he left all the books to her. Chaucer. They reference other books in the book, in in the movie that they also think are dirty. And there's actually a website devoted to this called um, the like. I'll, I'll post this, but it's a reading map, and they list all the books that are labeled dirty books in the Music Man. <laughs> and so, if we want another podcast spinoff, we could do yes. that. We could just read the dirty books from the Music Man. <laughs> And we can um, read those because when the women that they the pick a little talk a little women read the books, their minds are opened up and they accept Marion because she is now. I mean, she does find love with Harold Hill. I mean, she's, she's also an example of a spinster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm just saying it's a fitting, it's a fitting, it's a fitting comparison. Yeah. But now you're just gonna want to watch the Music Man. So I love that. you're welcome. I love the Music Man just with every fiber of my being. <laughs> Um, there's also a statue of Balzac Rodin, um, sculpted him. There's some, he's included in a few other things, but there's one, as you're walking down the streets of Paris, you'll just see a Rodin statue of Balzac and you can be like, oh, there he is. Thank you. Um, 
So hopefully one day when we get to Paris, we can do that. Um, he was included in Truffaut's mu- uh, movie, The 400 Blows. It's a 1959 French cinematic classic. And uh, Truffaut really, really admired Balzac and wanted to include him in that that depiction and that story. Um, his books feature prominently in uh, the book Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress that we talked to, that we talked about yeah. on Reading Glory. Um, so they were moved and, you know, the, that, that book helped inspire them or Balzac helped inspire them. Um, and then let's talk about the movie adaptations here. There's actually a mini series that was, um, out in 1974. Helen Mirren was in it. She did not play Bet, just for the record. Who did she I play? Think she played, I think, no, I think or she Hortons? played Hortense. Hortense, uh-huh. yeah. Um, I think. It's so there hard to, not, feature- to picture a Helen Mirren as a young woman. <laughs> like, she had to play Adeline because she's old. No, she's not. She was one young in 1974. <laughs> um, there's a feature film that came out in 1998 that had Jessica Lange on the cover of Aaron's book. Um, Elizabeth Shue. Um, she plays um, Jenny Kadeen, who is basically the Valerie character. It's just like everyone's mistress that everyone loves. There, there's, um, there's, a few, con- there's a few opera, mister, opera mistresses in the book, and they kind of just take it and make her one. Yeah, they just I'll put it all character. into one. Yeah. But Valerie wasn't an opera mistress. She was actually a lady. She was just another mistress. So she was like the main mistress. She was more middle class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Hugh Laurie was the Baron. Um, so it was kind, kind of interesting to see him get his demise, I guess. And um, so today, this afternoon, I started to watch that movie, and it was not good. Um, no offense to whoever made that, but you have to have, like, oh, Robert Hoskins was Mr. Cravel, and he had an American accent. Elizabeth Shue had an American <laughs> so accent. Bad. We eventually just put it on mute, and it was much more entertaining that way while we had conversations about the election with different family members and <laughs> had this awful movie on mute in the background. <gasps> Cousin Bet was her costume designer, and she cut a hole in the backside of her costume, and that's why they became friends. Yeah, it was that weird. has nothing to do with the book. It was <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> so bad. So, anyway, there it is. That's the movie. Save your time. Did You didn't watch it, did you, Erin? No, I read the reviews on IMDb and looked, and looked at a lot of it, and then I was like, <laughs> I don't think this is worth my time, so I'm not going to watch it. Yeah. Because it did not it get good reviews on IMDb, <laughs> and was, a lot of people were like, "It's not good." So bad. Yeah, I mean, you're always curious. I'm always curious anyway to see how a, how a novel's adapted, right? And like, we were not far into it. We're like, this is bad. Like this this is real bad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. it, was, it was funny to watch on mute. That's all. I mean, I like Elizabeth Shue. No, no, do you? Okay. She- I do, but from she like was your not adventures and babysitting days, is that like where, yeah. where your loyalty? Yeah. Everyone likes from. adventures and babysitting. Okay. <laughs> yes, from that and the way she spells her name, yeah. there's a kinship That's there. That's true. That's true. So, I mean, she just—if she's a French opera singer, you have to have an accent. It didn't work. It didn't work for me. It was—it was. It was I'm so sorry. Like, well, and she don't didn't watch sing it. Don't either. Watch it. Did she sing her own music in that? I can't remember. I can't remember if she sang. But no, either way, she's not an like opera her just singer. Dancing. Well, and she wasn't singing no. it like opera. She was just singing. I, I it could have been her, but she wasn't like attempting to sing like an opera singer. She was just like singing like normal. It was bizarre. She mostly just did the splits and like showed her her bum, her bum. Mm-hmm. That's it. That like not and, and then it just showed how much the men loved her and they loved her. So that part was clear. I on you in the yeah. book. It's not even her. It's a different character that they should have been after, and she was not an actress. So I just think like. 
Read the book. It was a miss. Don't watch the movie. That's the, that's the sure. takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So hopefully that's not what this inspired you to do, anyone. I hope no one was like, I want to read this and watch this movie now. Um, so, But what did Cousin Bet inspire you to do? I can't wait to hear our takeaways. Erin, uh, you go first. Oh, man. Well, I honestly, it didn't really if i needed to take revenge it would have been a fun you know couple of books right with the count of monte cristo and cousin bed to get get some interesting ideas on revenge revenge. but i i don't have a need for revenge at the moment so um that was not very helpful i think the spinster thing i think i walked away from it honestly just feeling like um I, I just want to lean all in to this spinster, to like my spinster standing right now. Like, uh, that's how I'm going to stick it to the world is just be like, yeah, that's right. And embrace my inner pre-revenge You're taking cousin it back. bet. I'm taking it back okay. without actually using the word because uh, I don't yeah, like really the word don't. to Sarah's point earlier. I think I think the you word needs to be eliminated. But Bachelor you know. lady. Bachelor <laughs> lady. <laughs> Or Bachelorette. Uh, <laughs> no, I read a book called Bachelor Lady. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was all about that. Anyway, so, Erin, I love it. You're just going to embrace it. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, those were kind of the two main thoughts I had walking away from it were about mm-hmm. revenge and then just getting, like, hung up on this idea of how they were talking about Bet as a spinster. Got it. I was hoping that you'd be like, well, I want to write. Because Balzac became a writer <laughs> after quitting his legal career. And I have said that on a number of podcasts. So it's, but I feel like I'm be- beating a dead horse at this point and no, sounding like a broken I just, record. I know that's why we were making fun here. of you just now. <laughs> so I have intentionally tried to steer joke. clear of that. <laughs> Although I actually don't think this book would have put me in that category, category anyway. No, no, no. I didn't walk away from this book thinking that. But there have been others recently where I have thought that and have intentionally not said it. You're all yeah. welcome. So now we're, now we're going to call that pulling a Balzac. And so when, when I don't know quits, that that's going to catch on, Liz, but okay. <laughs> no one else will know. But for you, whenever that's when you're inspired to be writing as your thing, you'd be like, well, I'm going to pull a Balzac. And we'll all know from episodes past what that means. Like you're throwing in the towel and you're going to write. And I think you should because you're an excellent writer. Okay. Okay. But also, like, do that in your spare spinster time. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? Um, it made it inspired me to read the ginormous biography of Napoleon that I bought a couple years ago and have not yet cracked open, but it sits on my shelf and looks impressive. Um, but I have always been fascinated by Napoleon and don't know much about him other than what I learned in, like, high school European history classes, right? So, um... I think the context of these novels are it's so dependent on just like understanding when I say novels I mean Monte Cristo as well right like it's so dependent on understanding like the political situation in France at the time which was so unstable and and the impression that like Napoleon left on Europe and on the world I don't know like I just think he's this fascinating figure that I don't know much about and I mean maybe I've watched a lot of Succession recently and there's lots of jokes about um Connor getting really into Napoleon. Um, But so maybe I can just like access my inner Connor Roy and just get like all in on Napoleon. I think that's what I'm going to do. 
I think that that's <laughs> with your Napoleon knowledge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I would, especially after... Especially after reading Count Monte Cristo too, and like finding what that really means to be on Napoleon's side. Like, I want you. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, like I get it, it. I get the broad outlines, right? Like the, but mm-hmm. like Napoleon was mm-hmm. so complicated and contradictory, and like I just think it's really fascinating, and um, and also I think there's like applicable stuff to today in the political environment we live in today with with a, like a figure that's that kind of whatever you know what I mean so I um and there's just so many references throughout the book to the empire and and like understanding like who these different people were in what context whether Napoleon was in power or after or in between and um and it's just such an interesting historical period that I want to know more about so I'm going to finally read that book uh, so it's the I bought the Napoleon a life by Andrew Roberts which is supposed to be like the definitive like one volume biography of Napoleon and it's huge and I bought it and I have never even opened it so I was inspired to do that all right I hope you get to that thank you Sunday after read crime punishment first <laughs> <laughs> spoiler uh... alert so my inspiration is I'm actually not really going to do it, but in my mind, this is where my mind went. So there you go. But I did enjoy in the book that Valerie, there's this description of her and how she could just ensnare these men and bring them down. And like, we know their vices are sex and money. And apparently you can't control like she they bought her everything. And all she had to do was just like, look at them. And like, it didn't matter if they had families. I mean, I don't want to ruin anyone's family. So that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but my point is this is that um, there are some bad men out there. And uh, like, if all it takes to stop those bad men and to ruin those bad men is to have women just like, ensnare them and trap them like why aren't we using our forces for um, for good for good <laughs> i don't know i haven't really fully th- th- thought good? this through <laughs> so like i haven't really worked out how this is gonna work yet but apparently men are really easy to bring down so that's one thing i learned and apparently like if women bond together to do it we can do it so i uh, sisters unite and let's like like make these men realize that they are blowing it when they can't control themselves and sisters unite take down the page i don't know whatever <laughs> top of the say. patriarchy that's where you're going with this. i like it okay like, i don't want to take it too far but you know it is kind of where i felt it a little bit and um so although again, i fully worked out how that's gonna work but it was an inspiration for a moment, right? So, <laughs> on a serious note, though, that is kind of what the Me Too movement has been doing, right? Like, right, yeah, bringing yeah. to light actions that should not be happening behind, like, at all, particularly behind closed doors, and in, you know, when you're dealing with, um, you know, positions of power and things like that. So, mm-hmm. anyway, I think that. Yeah. As much as you may be just joking, Liz. No, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm also not joking. <laughs> like, but, I was like, yeah, all right, yeah, this is how it there, happened. Yeah, right? there, is, there is a moment for that right now, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. the, that's the, what the whole Me Too movement is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, that, that, there's a reason why I'm, like, reading through the book and being, like, having, like, um, the Hit 'em Up Style song pop in my head, right? <laughs> Do you guys know that song? That's, that's, a, that's from a while ago. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm old. I love that song. song. You know how they just like 
get their revenge by like taking all their money and these women did that right like these stupid fools right like hey ladies <laughs> when your man want to get want, wants to get buck wild <laughs> Go up and hit him up style. There we go. That's where I want to end. Um, so, like, I mean, I don't want men to be afraid of me. Please, that's not the object here. So if men, you're out there, you're like, I would want to date this spinster, this pearl of spinsters, but she just sounds like a really shrill, shrill, revenge-ridden person. I'm not. I love you guys. It's cool. Let's get married. Um, do you think... Okay, let's move on. We're done. Do you think that uh, this is a smutty book? Did you think it had a happy ending? If you did, come find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reading with Rory. We can talk about it. Uh, join our conversation. It's a fun one. Um, don't forget to leave us a review. Tell us and others what you think of our podcast. Um, and next time on Reading with Rory, we're going to be reading Crime and Punishment. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So we'll hope to see you then. Or, well, we won't see you <laughs> That's not how podcasts work, but maybe, you know. It came. We hope you join us. We hope you tune in. Thank you. Via podcast.